Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, we are back for part two of our discussion about the death ray. Last time we we went ended up talking about death rays for a really long time and still had tons of stuff to say. Yeah, if you didn't listen to that first episode, definitely go back and, and give it a listen because that's the episode that's going to really get into the mythology, that's going to get into the ancient history and take us up into the modern era. This episode is going to be really more about the legacy of the death ray. Uh, you know, usually uh, what... Uh, amounts for the second half of a, a normal episode of invention the uh, the post Harry Grindel Matthews period mm-hmm. the, the the post Grindelwald period as you might yeah. put it <laughs> uh, so I guess we should do a, a real brief refresher on what we talked about last time so we talked about how during the first half of the 20th century especially in the 1920s and 30s there were all these news reports about a new technology on the cusp of realization and it was the death ray this was some kind of directed energy weapon most often characterized as harnessing the power of electricity, but sometimes also described as working on the basis of invisible particle beams, heat rays, radio uh, or radio waves, uh, radium rays, X-rays, or other hypothetical exotic powers such as the nameless force of the con artist James C. Wingard, you remember him, or the so-called F-rays of Giulio Ulivi, which were later I think renamed M-rays and who knows what after that. Yeah, and that one especially was this mix of, you know, possibly, you know, some sort of technological um, trickery that was taking place. Mm-hmm. Some sort of, it seems like there may have been some sort of uh, uh, wave effect that he was uh, utilizing. But on the other hand, there was definitely some trickery, uh, definitely some uh, some underhanded salesmanship uh, when it came to marketing this wonder weapon to different nation states. Ulivi probably would have made a good stage magician. Yes, and I think that, and that's one of the comparisons we kept making. Like, does this sound more like a demonstration of a weapon technology mm-hmm. or more like a David Copperfield stunt? Well, Ulivi's career started this pattern that we would see just again and again and again throughout the, the history of these death ray inventors, which is they come out with a claim, they say, I've got a death ray, it does amazing things, and then they either will not demonstrate their technology publicly and then it just kind of goes away or – they do demonstrations, but they tightly control the conditions of those demonstrations and have to, like, kind of be around to set things up ahead of time, which makes you wonder if there's trickery going on. Uh, so, of course, we also talked about the the myths last time, like the myth of uh, Balor, Balor? How do you say that? Uh, Balor, I believe, yeah. Um, the, the, the wonderful death gaze underneath mm-hmm. his giant lid. Uh, and then we talked about why these claims of the death ray invention were so popular, especially in this one historical period of like the 1920s and 30s. And so we cited this book called Death Rays and the Popular Media, 1876 to 1939, a study of directed energy weapons in fact, fiction and film by William J. Fanning Jr. Uh, from 2015, which I think correctly makes the connection between the fascination with death rays and the paranoia people felt after World War one, that the new technology of aerial bombing and chemical weapons would mean that the next war between the great powers, often referred to in the newspapers just as the next war, would be apocalyptic in the scale of its death toll unless we could find some way to stop the bomber planes before they reach their targets in, in the civilian areas uh, or, or if they could just stop war altogether. And, of course, the idea of the death ray filled this gap of defensive technology in people's minds because without without imagining a death ray, people would just be forced to contemplate the fact that the bombers could always reach them. 
And then finally, we also discussed the story of Harry Grendel Matthews, an English electrical engineer who set off this media firestorm in the year 1924 with a well-publicized campaign of claims that he had invented a death ray, which could stop airplane motors at a distance or kill armies with a beam of electricity. And we talked about the short film that he had made to uh, to promote this invention, though ultimately Grendel Matthews was never able to demonstrate that his invention did what he claimed, at least not in a reliable or reproducible way. And if you want to watch that short film, uh, I have a link to it on the landing page for this and the previous episode of Invention at our website, inventionpod.com. I recommend it. It's it's uh, like uh, Buster Keaton aside, it's one of the funniest silent movies I've seen. Yes, it is uh, unintentionally hilarious. Uh, so Harry Grendel Matthews, though, was far from the only guy running the death ray racket. Uh, we've discussed a few of the people who came before him or around the same time with related claims. Many, many people came after him. It seems like Grendel Matthews really just got the death ray racket it, 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 he, he inspired a, an army of followers. Yeah, if if he were doing it today, he would have a pretty entertaining Kickstarter page, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, but this was this was how you kicked off your projects back then. You were just kind of like the idea of the lone inventor in his lab going out and selling his wares with a vaudevillian style. Yeah, you know? I'm, I'm looking for investors, so I'm going to France. I'm going to England. Going to the United States. Mm-hmm. Who's gonna get? Who's gonna get the death ray? Yeah. And, and again, it's just kind of crazy to, to look at these examples where they're just going around. They're talking to, uh, you know, to Italy, to France, to the to uh, to, to England, then going uh, over to Russia, right? Uh, peddling their super weapon, uh, <laughs> in a, you know, in what today would seem insane. It would be like James Bond villain level of uh, of danger here. And a lot of these uh, newspaper reports do have a very James Bond villain kind of feel to them. In fact, one of the points Fanning made that we talked about last time was how a lot of the these uh, death ray stories, you often would assume that the obsession with them in the public came from science fiction. But actually, he says it's sort of the other way around. Yeah. Like the, a lot of the fictional death rays and fictional mad scientists were very similar to stuff you could read about in all kind in newspaper articles all the time in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, yeah. So this was a case where the science fiction was born out of the out of the science, yeah, or the supposed science, right? Yeah, the the what was classed as nonfiction reports about science, but a lot of it turned out to be trickery. What seemed to be the technological trajectory, yeah. In in the same way that you know everyone always brings up flying cars, of course, and we have all these wonderful examples of flying car like vehicles in our science fiction, mm-hmm. and it was based in in a large on a large part on the idea that this seemed to be the trajectory, like. This seems to be where we're going. So we're we're populating our visions of the future with this idea. I think actually the death ray and the flying car will have some very interesting parallels because in both cases, these are examples of things which are not in any way prohibited by the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. Like you can make these things. It's just a question of whether they are in fact practical when you could accomplish the same goals roughly with much, much cheaper and more efficient stuff. And by the way, uh, we will be discussing some of our favorite science fiction death rays yeah. later on in the podcast. More toward the end, yes. Yeah. So Fanning refers to this period between Grindel Matthews' big media splash around 1924 and the outbreak of the Second World War, so basically 1925 to 1939, as the death ray craze. And he points out that during this period, claims of death ray inventions were constantly appearing in the media, uh, often from frauds and con men, but also from like uh, real 
scientists who apparently just had enthusiasm for what they might be able to do. We'll talk about some of those real, very credible scientists later on who uh, thought who you know thought that they could make a death ray. But also from this class of sort of enthusiastic amateur inventors who seem to be true believers in their own work, but without much of an understanding of the underlying physics. This is something we'll have to keep in mind when eventually we come back around and discuss uh, uh, attempts at zero gravity technology yes. because you see a very similar thing. Amateurs coming along and creating something that may appear to be zero gravity but is not. Now, I want to talk uh, about one particular example of the many, many uh, – can we call them Raygun entrepreneurs? Who, I like that, yes. Yeah, the Raygun mm-hmm. entrepreneurs who appeared in this post-Grindel Matthews period. I want to look at a fellow named Maurice Francil. Now, Fanning cites this guy in his book, but I actually looked up an original newspaper article from October 1926. I think it's a wire service article, but this version uh, was in the Danville Morning News. And it, it was basically too good not to read in full, I think. Because this is a this is a local story for us, right? You're right. This guy, he gave he showed up at an expo in Atlanta. So maybe we can, uh, Robert, do you want to trade off reading parts of this article here? Certainly. Uh, I'll start here. Dateline Atlanta. Will the radio death ray make future war impossible? Maurice Francil, American radio wizard, thinks it will. However, should there ever be another conflict between nations, Francil predicts that the weapons used will be poison gas and light radio death-dealing waves, annihilating hundreds at a time. Francil, who admits he stumbled on the death ray by accident, told the recent radio exposition here that he plans to ask the governor of some state for the privilege of demonstrating its death-dealing properties on some condemned murderer. (laughs) The day is not far distant, said Francil, when death ray and radio waves will be used by police to stop engines of speeders and bandits. The death ray is only slightly different from the radio wave, but it is too deadly for radio (laughs) amateurs to be permitted to experiment with. Just think what it would have meant to the police of Elizabeth, New Jersey, when they were pursuing the mall robbers. Bullets could not stop the fleeing bandits, but radio waves properly applied would have halted them. The same force applied in a slightly different manner can be employed to start fires at a distance, and such action necessarily would explode powder. Its use can be carried even further so as to supersede explosives in times of war. The deadly effects of violets in certain forms, x-rays, and similar waves are well known. I have the wave that is deadly, but it is too dangerous for radio amateurs to know of. (laughs) So I love already by 1926... We're seeing some creep of the concept, Mm -hmm. right? Like it starts always with this high-minded, like we're going to end war. We will make war impossible. It's time for world peace. The death ray will do it. And the hook here is still that it will make war impossible or at least stop the bombers that are coming to kill civilians by the millions. But Maurice here apparently just can't help himself and almost immediately starts drooling about incinerating criminals (laughs) and begging governors to give him a prisoner to vaporize and also going on about how the ray is mine. It's all mine. No one else can have it. You know, this brings me back to the guillotine episode, you know, where we talked about the how inevitably a new technology comes along. Somebody is going to say, let's execute people with this. Yes. And, uh, and here we have the exact same situation, granted with a technology that has not actually come to fruition, but already they're thinking we could execute prisoners with this. Well, this is another version of what happened with the electric chair. You know, the electric chair mm-hmm. was that conclusion brought to fruition in the wired electricity era. And now they're essentially trying to do the same thing for the wireless energy era. And thank goodness it didn't catch on. I, I, the, the idea of, of, say, essentially microwaving 
our uh, our prisoners is uh, is a little unsettling. I don't think that like if you go back and you play the tape of history again, I don't think it's impossible that something like that would have happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are always interested in trying new technologies, like you're saying, to to get retributive justice against uh, against people who they believe have done wrong. Like so many people have this bizarre science fiction uh, uh, corporal punishment lust. Yeah. And granted, I could also see where someone could have made the argument like, well, the, the, the death ray, that's the, the, the best way, the most humane way to execute somebody. That's exactly what yeah. they would have said. Yeah, yeah, it will be quick and painless, you know, far better than those older technologies. Yeah. I guess we can be glad that didn't happen. No, uh, like Georgia governor uh, said, go for it. As far as I know, no governor ever gave him a prisoner to demonstrate on. Uh, so a couple of other ones mentioned in Fanning that I just uh, couldn't pass up mentioning because they're pretty weird. One is in 1926, an English masseur and osteopath named Ibbotson said he had invented a ray that could go through six feet of lead, okay. uh, work as an electrical gun shooting seven-inch bullets, okay. work as a remote control for a boat, turn steel to powder, weld brass and steel together, and petrify silk. Hmm. Oh, what does that mean? Don't know. Well, I know you can't iron silk. So, uh, <laughs> oh, really? That is my understanding, yes, that if you iron it, you destroy it. Oh, okay. Yeah. You learn something new every day. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, here's another good one that Fanning mentions, the plague ray. Oh, now this, this is a great <laughs> title because this sounds like it's legitimately a technology from like the Warhammer 40K universe that like plague marines would be using to, to uh, you know, to, to, to zap enemy marines with some sort of awful uh, infection. It sounds to me like a lesser Lugosi movie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but so in 1933, a professor, O.A. Newell, head of research at the National League of Health in London, said he had a wireless ray that could transmit diseases such as anthrax. Huh. Hmm. I have a hard time imagining how that could possibly work. But. Yeah. I, I, so, something seems missing there. Yeah. Uh, but this is just a tiny, tiny taste. There are just so many guys with death rays. Fanning documents them exhaustively. I don't know how how to count how many of these stories appeared in different uh, newspapers throughout the 20s and 30s, but it's at least dozens, maybe over 100 that he documents here. And it, it's just they're, – they're very, very common repeating themes. Like very often the inventor says the death ray will end all war or make war impossible, claims it can stop airplanes or and kill or disable humans at a distance. I think this is consistent with everything we've been talking about so far because there's all this fear of the next war and the main part of that fear being the terror of aerial bombing. But there's other common weirdness that keeps showing up like there were at least a handful of stories that all contained the detail that the inventor promised a death ray and then claimed they had been burglarized and the plans had been stolen. How convenient. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it lines up with what we saw in examples in the last episode where as, as an interested party begins asking more questions and asking for more control over experiments and, and, um, and demonstrations, mm-hmm. suddenly the technology is not working as well. Suddenly there are problems. So this seems like the next logical step like oops it was stolen sorry yeah exactly and i think this highlights that tons of people making these kind of claims were either either totally in over their heads mm-hmm. and they made a claim and then couldn't back it up or they were just frauds from the beginning right but there were actual real scientists and real inventors 
who were at least claiming to be involved in this kind of research. And there were some government projects that looked into it uh, throughout this period. And I think maybe we should explore one of these big-name scientists who got into the death ray business when we come back from a break. All right, we're back. So everybody's probably wondering, who's it going to be? Well, it's uh, Nikola Tesla. Of course it's Tesla. So Nikola Tesla, the, you know, the famous, uh, the, the famous engineer, scientist, inventor. Arch enemy of Edison. This is, this is one of the <laughs> biggest names in legitimate uh, scientific and technological innovation of the electricity era. I mean, th- this, guy, this guy's the real deal. He's not a con artist. Right. And really, he's a guy that has become, uh, I feel like his star has only risen over the past 10, 15 years. Right. Uh, as people have learned uh, more about him and he's just become kind of an, an online cult figure. Yeah, totally. I think uh, th- there were several like memes or comic strips about him at some point that yeah. made there, him really popular. There's even a video game where he battles H.P. Lovecraft now. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, and Lovecraft is the, the villain. I did not know that, but I would play that game. That yeah, it looks sounds... fun. It looks fun. Uh, so at various times throughout the 1930s, uh, maybe beforehand, but definitely in the 30s, Tesla claimed to have created some kind of ray or beam or electrical weapon that would destroy war itself. And I've read about this, and it seems like he was vaguely describing somewhat different types of weapons at different times. Uh, but just to give you a flavor of the Tesla death ray hype, In an article in the New York Times from July 11th, 1934, the author writes, quote, This death beam, Dr. Tesla said, will operate silently but effectively at distances as far as a telescope could see an object on the ground and as far as the curvature of the earth would permit it. It will be invisible and will leave no marks behind it beyond its evidence of destruction. An army of one million dead, annihilated in an instant, he said, would not reveal even under the most powerful microscope just what catastrophe had caused its destruction. That's quite a claim. Another connection to last time, it's worth noting that Grindel Matthews publicly expressed great admiration for Tesla and said that he aspired to be like him. He told his biographer that, quote, whenever I had some little success which might have turned my head, I always thought of Tesla and realized that I was a mere student sitting at the feet of a great master. And, and Grindel Matthews was not a, a not shy about his own ability, so it's probably telling that he felt uh, compelled to bow to Tesla on this. Yeah, and so th- there were several Tesla claims throughout the years. One was this kind of like beam or ray weapon that would annihilate armies. Other times, Tesla seemed more trying to emphasize that this was purely a defensive weapon that could be used against, like, enemy aircraft. And he sometimes later described it as being more like a an invisible curtain that could surround a country and keep invading armies and aircraft away. Uh, sometimes it seemed like he was talking about some kind of, like, charged dust that would go up like a wall in the air mm-hmm. and keep stuff out. His, his claims varied a lot over time. And this suggests to me that Tesla did not, like, really have a prototype of anything he was talking about. It sounds more like he, he had some ideas and was, was talking up his ideas. Yeah, he, he seems to have seen some, some scientific avenues through which one might develop certain weapons. To give you another taste of uh, what Tesla was uh, cooking up here, uh, here's what he said on the matter in a 1937 interview with George Sylvester uh, Virek for the publication Liberty. Quote, 
Hitherto, all devices that could be used for defense could also be utilized to serve for aggression. This nullified the value of improvement for purposes of peace. But I was fortunate enough to evolve a new idea and to perfect means which can be used chiefly for defense. If it is adopted, it will revolutionize the relations between nations. It will make any country, large or small, impregnable against armies, airplanes, and other means of attack. My invention requires a large plant, but once it is established, it will be possible to destroy anything, men or machines, approaching within a radius of 200 miles. It will, so to speak, provide a wall of power offering an inseparable obstacle against any effective aggression. If no country can be attacked successfully, there can be no purpose in war. My discovery ends the menace of airplanes or submarines, but it ensures the supremacy of the battleship, because battleships may be provided with some of the required equipment. There might still be war at sea, but no warships could successfully attack the shoreline, as the coast equipment will be superior to the armament of any battleship. I want to state explicitly that this invention of mine does not contemplate the use of any so-called death rays. (laughs) Okay. Rays are not applicable because they cannot be produced in requisite quantities and diminish rapidly in intensity with distance. All the energy of New York City, approximately 2 million horsepower, transformed into rays and projected 20 miles could not kill a human being because according to a well-known law of physics, it would disperse to such an extent as to be ineffectual. I think he's talking about the inverse square law there, which is true. My apparatus projects particles that may be relatively large or of microscopic dimensions, enabling us to convey to to a small area at a great distance trillions of times more energy than is possible with rays of any kind. Many thousands of horsepower can thus be transmitted by a stream thinner than a hair so that nothing can resist. This wonderful feature will make it possible, among other things, to achieve undreamed of results in television, for there will be almost no limit to the the intensity of illumination, the size of the picture, or distance of projection. I do not say that there may not be several destructive wars before the world accepts my gift. I may not live to see its acceptance, but I am convinced that a century from now every nation will render itself immune from attack by my device or by a device based upon a similar principle. So yeah, especially at the end there, despite the fact of – despite how confident he is, Mm -hmm. it seems like he's still basically just hashing this out as sort of a a technological thought experiment. Right, and he's kind of hedging his bet there by saying, you know, I I may not live to see it, uh, but this will one day be really big. And it's Tesla. I mean, Tesla was a a real inventor, a Mm -hmm. real superstar. uh, And so people took his claim seriously, right? I mean, not not everybody did, but this – he didn't come off as an obvious fraud or con artist here. No, no. He seemed to be a a very – informed scientist who truly saw farther than than most of us. Yeah, and governments took him seriously too. Yeah, so he announced this idea during a 1931 press conference and attempted to gather funding for the project, but he was ultimately unable to convince backers. Uh, I guess because he didn't have a properly, uh, you know, vaudevillian demonstration or a short film prepared. Right. Um, however, in 1937, the alleged Russian arms front to Armtorg Trading Corporation did write Tesla a check for 25000 and and, um, and one stage of the technology was allegedly tested, but of course the death ray did not become a standard weapon of war. Uh, and of course, war in all its appalling forms certainly continued. 
And of course, we touched on this in the quote that uh, we just read, but, uh, you know, he proposed that the technology could be used to transmit wireless power uh, and, and it could be used to, he- get this, heat up parts of the upper atmosphere to light the sky at night. Oh, that sounds good. That Yeah, that does, does not sound <laughs> particularly safe. It seems like that could have some um, some effects on the local weather. Well, I mean, it's like a lot of Tesla's ideas. I mean, he he was, I think, undeniably a genius. But like his idea, he had ideas for how to power lights in the home by like uh, sending out a, a electrical current that would electrify the walls inside a house, and this would induce current in a disconnected uh, light fixture that was between the walls. It, it's not hard to see why this kind of thing didn't catch on. Right. Like it, maybe it, it, it's the kind of thing that made sense in Tesla's mind, but uh, the, the rest of us are probably not going to be on board with it. Uh, kind of that classic, you know, I think we've discussed this before, the uh, the disconnect that um, that sometimes existed between NASA researchers and astronauts. Yeah. Uh, Mary Roach goes into this in her book, uh, Packing for Mars. But you would have these, you know, very hardcore scientist um uh, types who would say, look, uh, all right, we're, we're trying to figure out how you would do this uh, mission to another planet. Well, uh, you know, what if we made the walls out of edible material? What if we, we come up with, came up with a way for the astronauts to uh, reconsume fecal matter or something like that? Uh-huh. And uh, it would make sense to them. But if you brought it up to the more sort of uh, test pilot um, uh, style astronauts of the day, they would say, yeah, we're not doing that. Or like early on, they didn't uh, think to plan for the idea that an astronaut might need to pee while in space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like sometimes you can you can miss the obvious things in trying to solve the, the bigger problems involved, right? Totally. I mean, being a genius in one sense doesn't necessarily guarantee that you that you have a, a thorough and practical mind in, in every sense. Uh, I mean, uh, we need to remind ourselves that a lot of great inventions don't always come from like scientific geniuses. Sometimes they just come from people who have hands-on experience with a certain kind of work or technology. Yeah, where they say, hey, this thing's pretty cool, but if I turn this around – uh, if I replace this part with this part, then then I have a true invention. Yeah. Now, Tesla wasn't the only real, credible, and even famous inventor to claim work on a death ray. In the 1930s, the Italian inventor Guglielmo Marconi, who is known for his important work on long-distance radio transmission and the invention of the wireless telegraph, claimed to be working on a war ray based on ultra-short radio waves, which I think basically means microwaves. Uh, so Marconi had previously also given public comments about how he thought technology in general, not necessarily weapons, could bring an end to all wars. Like in 1912, he told a magazine that, quote, the coming of the wireless era will make war impossible because it will make war ridiculous. Hmm. I think he was thinking like wireless communications that enables rapid communication all over the place. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe if everybody in the world can just talk to each other, we will stop having all this, this fighting, right? Oh, how naive. But it's also not clear that that's exactly what he meant because I, I think he just generally had lots of enthusiasm for the the wireless world as a whole. And th- this is a common thing at the time, especially among people who are enthusiastic about technology. There's an idea that a new technology will not just – fix a particular problem or make a particular job easier, but that it will it will have a kind of utopian effect. It will have a civilizing effect upon 
people and will will generally bring about a better world. Yeah, and uh, we've seen that with the internet, for example. Oh, man, do you, you remember the, the early internet hype about how like, wow, if we can just get everybody talking to each other, things will be so great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, let's just get everybody engaged in this conversation. And then you realize what happens when everyone is engaged in the conversation. <laughs> and it's not just a select uh, bubble of uh, individuals. But it wasn't just Tesla. It wasn't just uh, Marconi. It wasn't just all of these con artists we've talked about. I mean, there there were tons of people in this period who hoped for a technology who would that, that would end all war or make war impossible. And I, I've been interested in this line of thinking for a while. I remember long time ago, I did a, a guest episode of uh, the podcast Tech Stuff with our coworker Jonathan Strickland mm-hmm. about the idea of people who thought different technologies would bring an end to all war. Like I, I believe it was uh, Bertolot, the, the French chemist, who thought, you know, well, once we can use chemistry to engineer abundance of resources around the world and engineer, you know, abundant food and things like that out of out of base chemicals, then there will be no more war because there's just nothing to fight over. That's just one example. I mean, people constantly think that some new invention or technology is going to make all the fighting stop, and it's never happened so far. Right. I mean, you still, I mean, you certainly saw this argument early on with atomic weapons, and you still see it uh, rear its head today, where people making the argument that that the the, the atomic arsenals make nations safer and make the world safer because everyone's afraid to use them, this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to know how much validity there is to a certain version of this because you can't, like, you know, run the counterfactual of right. history. But, yeah, some people would say, like, nuclear weapons, though they are terrible if they were ever used, actually have had a positive effect because they might say, well, look, the United States and the Soviet Union never directly went to war with one another. And mm-hmm. if there had... If there hadn't been these nuclear arsenals, they would have directly gone to war with each other. It's, and and it's by, if they'd ever been used, you're, you're talking about uh, active warfare between two armed opponents. Of right. Because, of course, we, we did see the use of, of nuclear weapons at, Ex- the, at the close of the Second World War. Exactly right. No, I'm talking about the United States and the Soviet yes. Union against each other. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, we can't know if that's true. I mean, they might – without these weapons, they might not have gone to war with each other. But it certainly did not stop war or bring an end to war. I mean, it, all throughout the Cold War, even though the U.S. and the Soviet Union were never directly directly in conflict with each other. There were tons of wars that these powers backed and armed and carried out against other nations around the world. I mean, it, it's it, the, the list is huge. Yeah. You know, th- this idea, though, of the of, of atomic weapons being this kind of having this balancing effect. Uh, you you, uh, you see that utilized in Frank Herbert's Dune. Yeah. Uh, there, there's this whole um, uh, layer to it where the different great houses, like the the Atreides and uh, the Harkonnens, mm-hmm. they they all have their own house atomics. They, right. They have the family their, jewels. Yeah, yeah, they, they are, and and it's part of the balance between all these houses. Like these houses are not going to wage open war against each other, but of course they end up uh, waging all of these kind of of, uh, you know, medieval um, um, uh, campaigns against each other, these wars of assassins and so forth. Yeah. So while, uh, yeah, that, that, that's a great point of analogy. I mean, I don't know how to evaluate the claim that nuclear weapons prevented the U.S. and the Soviet Union from directly going to war with each other. It, it, I don't, 
I don't know how to know if that's true or not, but it's certainly not true that more and more powerful weapons stop wars from happening. Wars are still happening all the time. And I also kind of like maybe maybe then you would say, well, the problem is that not everybody has nuclear weapons, so, mm-hmm. right? Like nuclear armed powers or more technological powers can wage wars against less technologically armed powers. Uh, so then you would have to say, well, maybe the uh, the way to solve that problem is for everybody to have nuclear weapons. That doesn't sound like a great idea either. Yeah, yeah, that that is not a, an argument that that really convinces me. You kind of get into this similar area where it's like, well, if it's just if if every place is just a wild west town mm-hmm. where everyone has a six shooter, then you're not going to have shootouts. Uh, you know that sort of argument. Uh, you know you can you, you can tease that apart for for smaller scale situations, but yeah, when you're talking about nation states, I'm uh, I'm less convinced personally. Nevertheless, I mean, people people do still show this strain of thinking that like technological superiority will eventually make fighting impossible. Like some people still do seem to think that way. And I wonder like would that ever be possible? Would it – would that ever be true? Could you ever have a, a – even if you want to take the, the best case scenario there, you're not actually talking about just like dominating the world and crushing all possible dissent. Let's say you're only talking about defensive weapons that mm-hmm. would say protect your homeland from invasion or something. But in the, I mean, but in the, 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 the nuclear example, like – all defensive nuclear weapons are offensive nuclear weapons. Exactly. It's the theory of, of uh, the only defense is retaliation, mm-hmm. is the threat of retaliation. And we saw this in the last episode where we talked about the idea of uh, this came out of the bomber threat. The idea is the bomber always gets through. You can't stop the bomber planes from reaching your cities. The only thing that is a deterrent from uh, to keep people from bombing you is the threat that if they bomb you, you'll bomb them. Right. And of course, there's a – man, we could, we could really go down the rabbit hole with um, – with, with, uh, with discussing atomic weapons, and we may have to come back to them in the future. But you know, ultimately, with all of these cases, you, I, I think you could argue that you know, these are all situations where the technological abilities mm-hmm. of, uh, of 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 human conflict have certainly far outstripped the sort of conflicts that we evolved to engage in, and have ultimately yeah. the the mental capacity to engage in. Yeah, Even I'm, the social capacity to engage in. Our, our instincts are pretty good for thinking about fights that involve like teeth and hands. Mm-hmm. But yeah, throw a, a death ray in there <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a different scenario. Yeah. So I mean I, I guess this is my personal opinion but I would tend to think – looking at all of this history that it's kind of folly to engage in this, you know, new technological terror, this new weapon will finally bring about world peace. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the legacy and we're going to get into a little of that science fiction that we talked about earlier. All right, we're back. Now, there is one way that uh, we've been talking about this uh, this book by Fanning. Uh, Fanning points out that death ray research did come to a real and important technology to uh, defend against air raids, the original reason that people kept talking about it. And here's the story. So Fanning writes about how in the mid-1930s, British authorities invited this guy named Robert A. Watson Watt – Uh, who was superintendent of the radio research station at Slough to do research on death rays to shore up British air defenses. Like we talked about, like governments frequently did show actual interest in death rays. It wasn't just popular hype. The governments were like, well, if somebody's got one, we want it. So we want to know if this can be done. 
And so they they asked Watson Watt to see if there was any way of generating rays that could stop or destroy enemy aircraft. And so Watson Watt and his assistant, Arnold Skip Wilkins, did some tests in their lab. And they concluded, as others had in the past, that it was not practical to create such a ray uh, because in order to operate at the appropriate distance, to shoot planes out of the sky from a distance, it would require just an impossible amount of energy. Uh, they also mentioned, and this is in fact the, the same thing Tesla was right. complaining about once he adjusted his claim from the earlier death ray claim to the later particle beam idea. But then also uh, th these guys mentioned the idea that radio waves aimed at an aircraft might bounce back toward the transmitter. And this idea, of course, helped form the basis of what would become radar, mm -hmm. using radio waves to detect incoming enemy aircraft before they were overhead, allowing time to prepare defenses against the air raid. And so the death ray story proved doubly useful for the British here because Fanning points out that the British also allowed stories about fictitious government death ray projects to circulate sort of as a cover to substitute for the very real defensive technology that they were developing. Like if you let it be known that Britain is working on a death ray, it'll help give the citizens comfort without revealing anything about the real new technology of defense that you're working on, which they didn't want falling into enemy hands. Right. And then enemy uh, agents, they might, they might be more inclined to realize, well, we have our own death ray projects or we've, we've talked to some of these, these guys who are peddling it. We know there's nothing there. We know this is or we suspect this is a fool's errand. Mm -hmm. So it provides kind of a nice cover story for something that is a, an, an actual technology that's going to change the, the shape of war. And potentially a decisive technology, mm -hmm. like more precise and more miniaturized radar, I think could easily be considered one of the technological advantages that helped the Allies win the war in Europe. And uh, there's also a, a strange historical connection. So there's this British propaganda that says, yeah, we, we've got a death ray. That's what we're working on when really what they're working on is radar, which is far more useful and effective. There's another type of uh, British propaganda to cover up the advancement of radar technology, which is related to the origin of the myth that carrots give people super eyesight. Huh? So like you've seen these old World War II era ads from Britain saying, you know, have, have, have super sight like an RAF pilot. They eat carrots every day. Now, it is true that actually carrots contain beta carotene mm -hmm. and beta carotene turns into vitamin A when it's digested in the body. And vitamin A is important for proper eye health. But it's not like eating a surfeit of carrots will give you extra powerful eyes. You just – you need vitamin A from one source or another. Carrots are one of those sources. I have to admit that even though I've, I've known this for ages, uh -huh. when I eat carrots, there's still a part of my brain that kind of uh, pipes up and says, all right, eyes, here you go. <laughs> Oh, this one's for you. And, uh, well, th th this also served a double function because one of the things was that, you know, during World War II, the British, there, there was food rationing. I mean, a lot of things mm -hmm. were not widely available, but carrots were one of the things that they had in spades. This was a, a staple of every background garden, I'm guessing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Your victory garden had carrots in it. Oh. So people could eat. Is Mitch, you know, they wanted people uh, in, in Britain eating carrots to support the war effort instead of like using up precious sugar or something like that. This is why all the Beatrix Potter rabbits were considered enemies of the state at the time, <laughs> right? I don't know. Uh, but so they want people eating carrots and they also didn't want people to know about the advantage that RAF pilots had due to radar. Mm. 
So the enemy would think, how are they doing this? It's carrots. <laughs> it's the, the strategic carrot reserves that the British have at their disposal. I don't know if it worked on the enemy that way. I mean, th- that would be funny if they thought it did. But, uh, <laughs> but at least it at least worked at home. But now you know what carrots and death rays have in common. So here's a question. When did all of the death ray hype come to an end? Like we know at some point, it's not like people ever completely stopped talking about death rays. But this hype that we saw in the 1920s and 30s and to some degree during World War II, uh, it, it, it was clearly not nearly at the same level by, say, the 50s and 60s. Right. And certainly by the time I, I, I – as a child in the 80s, when I was reading my grandfather's um, uh, popular mechanics and popular science magazines, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't remember seeing anything about death rays. Like that was not – and that's where you would see it. Like that, right. those are the places where you would have seen like a popular obsession with this kind of pending technology. When would those magazines have been from? Uh, they were they were current. He he was current. Oh, on all okay. Those. So they were all uh, you know nineteen eighties editions. But uh, but yeah, there, there was no talk of that. And then also uh, you know I, I think I may have alluded to this in the last episode, but certainly you begin to see a fall off in the the use of of, of ray guns and death rays in science fiction too. Mm-hmm. You see sort of the return to uh, to using bullets. You yeah. see you see that in like uh, like aliens. You see that uh, I believe in Blade Runner. They do they have more ballistic technology, oh, yeah. don't they? Yeah, he's got a gun that shoots like huge bullets. They're almost like rocket bullets or yeah. something. Yeah. So it's like finally everyone was like, yeah, I'm kind of done with ray guns. Let's just get back to <laughs> putting big chunks of metal in people. Yeah, so ray gun fever never completely went away, but it definitely died down a lot by the middle of the 20th century, and the question is why. I think a big answer here is World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, you could say, okay, now people are reading reports from the battlefield, and it's like, where are all these death rays we've been hearing about? We've been hearing about death rays for decades now, and nobody's using them. There were there were a few news reports throughout the war that kept hinting at rumors of a German or Japanese secret weapon that many supposed to be a death ray, but there were just never any solid reports of one being used in the field. I think this clearly undercut public confidence in the idea of a death ray being a real thing. If they're real, why aren't, why aren't the major powers using them? But that doesn't mean that during the World War II era, the major powers were not uh, still interested in death rays. There was some research that continued to go on during this period. Uh, if possible, they wanted the edge. There, there was a story that uh, even like the Nazi Albert Speer talks about having this guy coming to him who's really interested in the Nazi government acquiring death rays. Uh, but he, but Speer just mocks him and says, okay, I'll make you commissioner of death rays. Nazis, generally not known for their uh, their humorous quips. Uh, I, I guess not. They, no. they, but they, 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 that's, that's a pretty solid burn. And of course, it wasn't just some people in the German power structure. You know, the, the 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 Allies, the Japanese, they remained interested in the idea of a death ray and carried out some research, but it, it just never materialized. It was never practical. It would require too much energy. It didn't work at a great enough distance. That seemed to be the major problem. Uh, was that what actual real physical death ray research did take place? Found that yeah, you can use you know you can use radiant energy of some kind. To, to cause damage to something, it just doesn't work at a great distance. And of course, another uh, angle to all this too is that certainly by the close of the war, uh, we saw the the awful potential of nuclear weapons. Like exactly. They had been demonstrated to horrific effects and we're still living in the, in the aftermath of, of those demonstrations. We are still living in an age in which uh, – 
the the threat of of their use continues to remain a, a horror of modern life. Absolutely. I mean, there was a new cutting edge almost science fiction terror weapon to think about and that was nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, once once you had atomic bombs actually being deployed, you can see how that would replace whatever kind of attention people might have been devoting to X-ray or not X-rays to uh, death rays beforehand. And you can see that in the in the fiction of the time too. What what was big in the science fiction and you know popular films of the 1950s? It was the Atomic Age monster movies. Right. Now, I guess another thing we can point out is that sort of like directed energy weapons or ray-based weapons remain in a way a physical possibility and they are actually used in some limited scenarios. You can build a lethal laser or x-ray projector or something like that today but when bullets and conventional explosives are so much cheaper and easier, they're generally the option that most militaries are going to go for. There remain sort of special cases where you might want some kind of ray weapon, uh, but generally speaking, they're just not super practical. And for those special cases, research has, of course, continued up until the present day. Yeah, I mean, uh, going back to Tesla, for instance, it's worth noting that charged particle beam weapon experiments did take place in the United States and the Soviet Union during this Cold War. The U.S. Department of Defense's Strategic a defense initiative organization sponsored the beam experiments aboard rocket or bear project in 1989 and an experimental prototype uh, neutral neutral hydrogen beam weapon uh, you know that it was uh, developed that they hoped might lead uh, to a space weapon yeah space weapons are a common place you see the idea of uh, of of beam weapons mm-hmm. or directed energy weapons uh being talked about these days. And, you know, we see other cases, again, to your point, lasers, um, acoustic weapons as well. But uh, but these projects, they don't play a huge role in um, in, in the, the, the structure of any given military or uh, defensive or offensive strategy. Uh, at most, you might see with the acoustic weapons, you know, you might see them used uh, to some effect as, a, as an instrument of uh, subversion or terror. Yeah. Of course, if death rays have a true legacy, it's in science fiction. Oh, yeah. So uh, I figured this is probably the best time for us to talk about some of our favorite examples of the death ray or the ray gun, um, you know, throughout uh, the different science fiction installments. We can't cover all of them. We can't cover like the, the real – all the real groundbreakers. But there are some fabulous ones to discuss. Oh, it's um, – so one of my favorite bad movies is the 1978 Star Wars ripoff Star Crash. Oh, yes. Starring uh, Carolyn Monroe as Stella Star and it's got this like uh, Louisiana accent Robot. Yes, I believe there's a recent uh, Mystery Science Th- Theater 3000 riff of this for anyone interested in checking it out. I actually haven't watched that yet, but I have watched the movie multiple times without any riffs whatsoever because I mm-hmm. want the pure experience. It's also got David Hasselhoff. It's got mm-hmm. uh, Marjo Gortner, who has a strange biography. He was like a child evangelist, like a tent revival preacher when he was a little kid, and then he grew up to try to be an actor, uh, and so he's in this movie. And he's in my favorite scene in the movie where there's a bad guy who's shooting him, shooting him with a laser gun, uh, and he says, uh, the bad guy says, no one can survive these deadly rays, and then Marjo turns the rays back on the villain and says, these deadly rays will be your death. <laughs> He's laser proof. That, that is good writing. <laughs> uh, oh, man, some of my favorites. Um, there was, uh, did you ever see 1959's Teenagers from Outer Space? 
I don't recall if I've seen. Oh, wait a minute! I think there's also an old mystery science theater of that, isn't there? There is, and yeah. then, and then the, the scene that uh, that I'm referencing here was also used in. It came from Hollywood. Oh, that, okay. That, you know the classic mashup of uh, of different uh, classic Hollywood sci-fi trailers and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but there's a scene where the the UFO lands uh, like in the desert, and a dog, a little dog, is yapping at it. And the the top of the UFO opens, uh, a spaceman peeks out, and he blasts the dog with a death ray, and the death and the dog just turns to uh, to bones immediately. Oh no! Yeah, it's a great little bit of uh, you know simple special effects because they just it's like there's a dog, and then they cut to the skeleton standing and then collapsing. <laughs> I, I don't abide violence against dogs in film. It, it was completely painless, though. Dog <laughs> did not suffer um, and was silenced. As Tesla would have wanted. Uh, I always loved the the uh, the death rays that you see in uh, 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, yeah? Riff Raff and Magenta bust out some really cool trident death rays at the end. Uh, Richard know. O'Brien is a death ray, though. He is. He is. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, he has that fabulous costume with the ponytail. And uh, yeah, I love the three-pronged death ray, one of my favorites. Um, the phasers of Star Trek certainly come to mind as, uh, as just – uh, classic directed energy weapons, essentially death rays, though they, of course, can be set to stun instead. We see blasters throughout the Star Wars movies, and lightsabers are ultimately an extension of the same idea. Yeah, it's like a solid death ray. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that ray guns became and have remained popular in mass market sci-fi media for one of the same reasons that they were popular in in reality during the death ray craze in the 20s and 30s which is which is the idea that they were clean yeah. you know think of like the muddy bloody depressing dirty confusing horror of world war 1 soldiers just blasted to pieces by artillery and burned with mustard gas uh, cities bombed people burning it, it, like the, the death ray is a way of making war and violence seem clean and hold you like there's not a lot of blood or you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, and so many times, and I think oftentimes just because it's cheap, it's a great it's a great way to have uh, sci-fi violence in your 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 low budget feature is that just you shoot them with a death ray and they fall down. You don't even need the crazy bones effect. Exactly. Well, I mean, remember the quote from that Tesla article where it says like an army of a million dead and uh, not even a powerful microscope would reveal what catastrophe had caused the destruction. It just seems like there's no blood. It's just a vaporization, just gone. It's so sanitized in ways that – like I, th- I, l- I think back to watching Star Wars as a child uh-huh. and I recently rewatched it for the first time and – God, probably a decade or more. I watched it with my my, my six year old son, and they're blasting each other, and they're presumably stormtroopers are dying all over the place, but you don't really think about it. And and even that scene where an entire planet is destroyed by the Death Star's massive death ray. Yeah. Um, I, as a kid, it, I never really thought about the fact that this was just an, an, an act of just pure genocide by the empire. Yeah. It was just like, oh, well, they just blew something up and yeah, it was the, the planet and Leia's upset about it. But it, it did feel very sanitized. You could almost you – know, you could almost like sympathize with the empire on that without really stopping to think that, oh, well, they just killed so many innocent people. Yeah. Well, in fiction, in film like you're talking about, it, it – 
because it's like this, it has the advantages, the twofold advantage of sort of getting around the censors by mm -hmm. not showing all the blood and guts. So it just – it makes violence less slimy and icky. But then also being cheaper, like you know, I think you were saying this a minute ago, like you don't need the effects of, right. of all that. So it's advantageous in films and fiction for that reason. But I think – it's sort of similar why it was so appealing to people in the 20s and 30s in reality. You were like, I could have a weapon in my country that would allow me to feel safe and defended without forcing me to think about like all of the body parts and stuff that, that would be left behind after that weapon does its business. It makes war seem clean. And this actually brings me back to what we talked about in our episode on the guillotine. Like uh, the, the whole idea there was that maybe, you know, a machine for beheading people in a mm -hmm. place where you've already got capital punishment. Uh, the idea behind the creation of the guillotine was that it would actually be more humane because it would make it a cleaner, more mechanical, less, uh, you know, less uh, prone to error and less bloody and nasty process. But do you actually – is it is that necessarily a good thing to sanitize the process? Does that actually make it easier to do violence when it's less uh, when it's less chaotic and, and gory? Yeah, it, it perhaps it invites us to lose sight of the true horrors involved in it. We get that we get that sanitized GI Joe cartoon version of warfare, yeah. which doesn't seem all that horrifying, seems fun. They were just watching all these different toys fly around and every time a, a plane explodes, a parachute is deployed uh, and people rarely ever die. Yeah, and you know what? I think I'm with the, the film director Paul Verhoeven on the idea that uh, gratuitous violence is not when a movie has lots of blood and guts and gore. Gratuitous violence is when there's tons of violence and you see no effects and feel nothing. Yeah, this was a – I remember seeing a similar argument made about Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. The idea that yes, there's violence in the film but, but – and, uh, and it's, it's – it's, some of it's very rough to watch but that arguably it all means something. Like it doesn't get into that gratuitous area there. Uh, that being said – I'm, I'm a little over traditional ballistics, I think, in science fiction. I'd like to see more of a return to ray guns and, oh, really? and death rays. Yeah, I don't know. It's just – it seems like I've, I've, I've watched a lot of people get shot in science fiction over the years. And uh, I'm, I'm ready for more ray guns, I think. Take it down a notch. Hollywood producers, are you listening? Accommodate <laughs> Robert's desires here. Yeah. Give us some good ray guns. Or you could go the route of uh, Warren Ellis in the comic series Transmetropolitan. I believe there's a ray gun that causes uh, intestinal discomfort and just makes you poop yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so maybe we could just see that in more science fiction uh, installments. Robert, this exploration of death rays has proven far more rich and deep and interesting than I even imagined it would be. And I had high hopes. Yeah, well, it, it illuminates an, a lot of, of actual technologies and just what was going on in the, uh, the, 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 the scientific zeitgeist at the time. So, yeah, this was a, the fun, a fun two-parter. And it also touched on areas that we may return to in the future, uh, in future episodes of Invention. And if you want to explore past episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That is the, the, the homepage for the series. That's where you'll find all the episodes, uh, as well as links out to some of the social channels uh, where you will find us. If you want to discuss this episode and others, uh, why don't you go to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's our Facebook group. Uh, that's a, a fun place to discuss these episodes with us, but also with plenty of other listeners. And if you want to support the show, one of the best things you can do, in addition to subscribing 
to Invention is to rate and review Invention wherever you have the power to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show uh, or to suggest a topic for the future, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. <laughs>